0: This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Bedrock Industries Group has reached a deal to buy U.S. Steel Canada. Uh, The union, however, is... uh, Well, you know what? A lot of people have different questions about this. Uh, Facebook, for example. uh, Darlene writes, uh, Bedrock Industries is still an American company. Hope uh, it is... uh, It's still an American company. Hope uh, this goes... uh, Does not turn into what U.S. Steel did. I guess we have to still wait and see. Uh, some are impressed, some aren't impressed, and uh, here's what uh, business professor uh, Marvin Ryder had to say on the issue.
1: And remember, it's these debts that have put them in credit protection in the first place, and this is what the court's going to mostly be interested in. Yes, I think the court would be thrilled if a company like Bedrock says, I'm going to take over operation and keep it all running for many, many years. But he also needs to know, what are you going to do with this accumulated debt? Uh, and without that, uh, he's not going to approve anything.
0: And, of course, uh, the union's interested in, you know, what happens with the pensions in all of this. Uh, let's bring in Larry DeAnne, former mayor of the city of Hamilton. He is with us now. Hello, Larry. How are you today? I am well, Scott. It is uh, great to speak with you again. What are your thoughts on this at First Light?
1: Well, I, 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 well, let me say that I'd like to be hopeful. I think everybody would like to be hopeful. We've, uh, we've been through this path before. And for the last couple of years now, we've been in this torch, what seems to be a torturous um, restructuring process uh, handled by the courts. Uh, so I'd like to be hopeful, but as, as uh, Professor Ryder just uh, said in uh, your item that uh, introduced this item, uh, there's so much that we don't know um, that uh, would answer some questions and, and, and make us feel a little better. Uh, but what we do know is a little disturbing as well. Like, for example, we do know that uh, this entity that's uh, uh, wanting to buy this, this bedrock Industries, is not a steel producer. They're not a steel company. They're a financial uh, company. And, uh, and uh, so they don't know how to make steel. And so the first question is, what happens to the steel-making process when a financial entity buys a steel company? Well, we go back, uh, Scott, to to history. This is what happened when the old Stelco went bankrupt. It was first sold um, not to U.S. Steel, but it was sold to a financial institution. Mm -hmm. And the first thing that they did was they came in, uh, they slashed employment, uh, they they, uh, fired or bought out the contracts of a whole bunch of people, uh, and then they, uh, they flipped it uh, to U.S. Steel, uh, who then couldn't make a go of it. So, you know, we don't want to go down this road again, uh, and that's why we need some assurances uh, of uh, what's going to happen to the steelmaking process, what's going to happen to the pensioners, what's going to happen to the city of Hamilton. Really, that, that uh, still depends on steelmaking. To some degree, to uh, create employment uh, for our community.
0: Why have we heard this? Why are we talking about this now? If there are still so many unanswered questions, why has it moved uh, this far?
1: Well, you know, it's it's such a complicated process. This this uh, this um, CCAA process, this uh, bankruptcy protection process, um, where you know the the company um, has to go to the courts. Uh, uh, the courts are also listening to uh, the unions uh, representing the employees. They they listen to the company itself, U.S. Steel, and there are also other bidders that that are part of this. Remember, we've had others that have uh, uh, that that have um, uh, shown interest before, um, and some of them, like I remember SR, I remember writing an essay actually uh, on this in. Uh, in the local paper, and I remember that SR was actually a steel making company, also uh, Indian company, but they were actually steel making. They were making steel in Algoma, and they were disqualified uh, primarily because they ran into some financial problems up in the Algoma area as well. So, so you know, why are we talking about this? Because it's not ended. At some point, the courts are going to have to weigh in and make a decision and either accept a deal uh, or, or, um, or wrap up this company, I, I guess. And, and, uh, and so um, it, the, the, the saga continues. What's hopeful about this is that the provincial government, who also has a stake in this, because remember, they are backstopping even today uh, some of the, uh, some of the uh, benefits that the company terminated. That the courts terminated for mm-hmm. employees mm-hmm. they're backstopping that, so they have a major say uh, in this as well, and Charles Souza, uh, you got to think he's looking after the interests of, uh, of the employees, the finance minister. He said, you know this is a milestone, a key part of the development, but because there are so many questions yet to be answered, we really can 't definitively say whether this is good or not.
0: Uh, In the end, you talked about other buyers and such, and and as you mentioned, I remember going through all of this prior to to U.S. Steel. Um, There really never seemed to be anyone interested that really had a credible offer, and that's what happened with the one, I believe, that you were talking about. It just, in the end of the day, they just couldn't pull the money together. Uh, Have there been any real credible offers for this? I mean, is it viable as a steelmaker? Are we being naive to think this can continue?
1: Well, so I, I think I, I, I guess this is a credible offer that, that's in front of us. I think the SR offer was a credible offer as well. What what if I if memory serves me correctly? But if what, it gets
0: disqualified, Larry, it's not a credible offer. I mean, if 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 Absolutely. they're having if they're having yeah. issues in other areas of, with not being able to, you know, exactly
1: they they, they uh, I guess the decision makers didn't trust the financial package that was being put forward by that company, uh, given its problems in other areas. But it was credible in the sense that it runs steel operations, it had some money, it promised to look after workers, and so on. So, so this is a credible offer as well, because there's a financial package here. You, the U.S. Steel itself has said they like the deal, but you know that causes me some concerns as well, because... Um, U.S. Steel, remember, they, they got over a billion dollars in this. And, and what happened last time was that they were looked after. And so if U.S. Steel, uh, as a major creditor, is going to be looked after, are the pensioners going to be looked after? Are the workers going to be looked after? Is there enough money in this deal to go around to make everybody whole or as whole as possible? We just We just don't know at this point. And so we've got to be very skeptical here. And, and you know, I'm a Hamiltonian. Uh, a Hamiltonian. I, I, uh, I worked at Stelco when I was in university, uh, you know, 100 years ago. But I still have a mother-in-law um, who, who is a pensioner, or at least a beneficiary from
2: mm-hmm. her
1: husband's pension, her deceased husband's pension. And she is saying to me, you know, she gets a pittance, really, uh, but she's saying, am I going to lose that? So you know, when you're 86 years old, you shouldn't have to worry about whether you're going to lose a few, you know, eight or $900 a month. Uh, and and uh, um, there are others in that situation as well. And so my interest, I think, in Hamiltonian's interest should be on what happens to the employees currently and what happens to those who were employed by the company before and are now on pension. And and the, last, the, 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 the least part of my worry is whether USP is happy or not. Now, that's not to say that they don't deserve to get a return on an investment that I'm trusting they made in some good faith as well. But this needs to be a deal that makes everybody whole, not just a component of, of the whole.
0: Is that possible in that situation, uh, Larry? I mean, is everybody just kicking this ball further down the road?
1: Well, I, I think uh, at some point the courts are going to have to bring some finality to this. This cannot go on forever, and that's why it's taken so long, because the courts have said, okay, let's see who comes forward, let's see what the package uh, is, let's see um, uh, how we can remunerate as many people as possible from that package. My guess is that at the end of the day, everybody takes a haircut on this. Um, um, and, and so people can't expect that, uh, to keep... Um, all, of, all of the assets uh, as if nothing had happened, as if we were not into this bankruptcy protection situation. Uh, however, there's a way of doing that that's fair, uh, and there's a way of doing that that's immensely unfair. And I would suggest that in previous iterations, uh, it hasn't been totally fair to the workers who were laid off, uh, who, uh, who were packaged out, And certainly not fair to this community, who has seen a sizable portion of a workforce uh, reduced as well, taxes not paid because, you know, operations have been been greatly reduced. Uh, So the courts are responsible for making sure, I think, that that fairness is part of the system. But, you know, speaking of Marvin Ryder, I remember that he said in an earlier uh, iteration that, and I'm quoting him, the judge won't care about what's good for Hamilton, the pensioners or anyone else. The judge is only going to care about who is owed money and in what order. Mm -hmm. And that is of great concern to me and I think most Hamiltonians as well.
0: Uh, It just seems, Larry, that this is an ongoing cycle. Uh, Business is down. There's no real interested, credible buyers that, that have a solid offer on the table. And this has been this way for years. Uh, the government comes in and you know provides some incentive, get somebody interested uh, because they have uh, obviously skin in the game as well now. Uh, and then some sort of deal is done, and for a brief period of time, everybody appears happy because everybody's working and things just keep rolling along. And then all of a sudden, there's difficulty with this new company. Then the unions fighting to open up a deal, which you know at the end of the day saved the company in the first place way back when. And here we are ending up where we are, and, and at the end of the day, what it seems to me is, guess what? This company is not sustainable anymore, and someone's got to let it go. I mean, as, as painful as that is for pensioners, da-da-da-da-da, I mean, some deal has to be sort of, some deal has to be done to, to somehow protect these people, but how how long can we keep punting this ball down the road, thinking that this company is viable?
1: Well, it's certainly not uh, interminably. We, we, this process has come to an end. I think legislation doesn't envision it, that, that it goes on forever. Uh, it's, it's put in place essentially uh, to, to organize uh, the bankruptcy and, and the distribution of assets. Uh, and that's why the company, uh, companies ask for bankruptcy protection while they restructure and find potential buyers and so on. However, let me just challenge a little part of what you said, although I, I agree that, you know, uh, Stelco, as I still call it, and most Hamiltonians, I'm sure, still do, or U.S. Steel is never going to be what it was when I was a, yeah. a young person um, uh, growing up in this city. It's never going to be that. But steelmaking is still important. Hamilton, look mm-hmm. down the street from where U.S. Steel is, and, and DeFasco or, or ArcelorMittal is still a going concern. Remember that U.S. Steel has two entities in our area. Uh, the old former Selcos one, uh, but there's Nanakolk as well, mm-hmm. which is a viable operation. In fact, the, the, uh, you know, people on the inside um, tell me that that really is the jewel in the crown. Uh, that, that's what you was trying to protect and would like back, and they want to ditch, uh, and, and they want that because it, it is a going concern. It is a plant that produces. It's a plant that has modern equipment, apparently, and it, it, it can be profitable uh, as well. What, what isn't profitable is the outdated uh, plant uh, here in Hamilton. Uh, except for some operations, uh, it really is, is a, a lost leader. How we got to that, how the company allowed the Hamilton asset to deteriorate to this extent is a whole other story. However, I come back to this, that if Nanocoke is tied to this deal uh, and, and there are creditors out there that are owed money uh, there are also employees and former employees out there that are owed money. And so whoever comes in uh, to, to purchase, uh, whether it's you know $0.50 cents on the dollar, $0.80 cents on the dollar, $0.40, cents, whatever that, that number is, that, those resources have got to be distributed, looking after as many as possible, and not just the company that's old the most, and that happens to be, uh, you know, the American-U.S. deal.
0: Uh, boy, uh, I'm sure there's lots, including me, that would that would love to see that. But again, as Marvin Ryder pointed out, is that going to happen with a bankruptcy judge?
1: And 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 uh, that's why the judge has a tough job, I guess. But boy, is there something wrong with legislation that allows that to happen, if that is going to happen. I'm, I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful that with the intervention of the government, um, with the intervention of the representatives of the workers, uh, that they will try to do some justice for the workers as well. And I guess I'm hopeful, uh, maybe against hope, but I'm still hopeful that that uh, even this company um, uh, will will buy with the intention of uh, of commissioning uh, uh, the steelmaking still to occur in the community.
0: Well, DeFasco seems to be able to do it, uh, so yeah, you're right. Uh, Larry D'Anne has been with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton. Larry, thanks for the insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, uh, a lot of people very concerned uh, about senior care in this province, and of course, uh, that fear was elevated again when we heard the case of a former Ontario nurse accused of killing eight nursing home residents uh, in uh, the area of uh, of Woodstock. And, and I think the thing that... Uh, that bothers most in this is that it went on for so long undetected. Elizabeth Tracy May Wetlawer, 49 years old, alleges, allegedly administered drugs to patients under her care at two nursing homes in Woodstock and in London, Ontario, between 2007 and 2014. And to get an update on where this all is right now, let's bring in Andrew Lawton, The Andrew Lawton Show on AM980, our affiliate, and he is with us now. Hello Andrew, how are you today? Hey, Scott. Good to talk to you. Thanks very much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, First of all, what's the buzz around Woodstock and London in regard to this story? I mean, this is something that shocks a lot of people. Everybody has uh, parents, grandparents and such. What's, What's the feeling been like?
3: It's been a really difficult experience for a lot of people. I know that even the families of the alleged victims have had a lot of difficulty because in some cases, going back as far away as 2007, they thought that they knew what happened to their family members. They thought that it was a natural death. And then to have all of this uprooted, not only in those families, but even in communities, as everyone has started to question, really, things that they thought they knew with their own parents or grandparents who may have been in these facilities or different facilities in the same time period. Not that there are more alleged victims to be put forward by police, but it causes everyone to question what they thought they knew. Let's talk about
0: that, Andrew. I mean,
3: just the fact that autopsies, what have you, I mean, was
0: any of that done? Or is it just the fact that insulin is gone from the body soon afterwards?
3: Well, it's too early to talk about the specifics of what may have happened. I do know that there's something called EDITH protocol when someone passes away in a nursing home, which stands for expected death in the home, and these cases generally aren't subjected to an autopsy because the death is not deemed, generally speaking, to be anything of a surprise, and that uh, is unfortunately something that, for these particular cases, now has a question raised about it. So one thing that I think will come up is what relationship inside insulin may have had if any we do know that elizabeth wetlawer was on a peace bond where she was told she couldn't have any exposure to insulin and knowing that police have told us that drugs were administered uh, to these people that does raise a question although that hasn't been answered yet formally
0: Uh, Has the handling of insulin changed in any way in nursing homes as a result of this? I mean, obviously, you know, there's lots of of, uh, chatter uh, about euthanasia and doctor assisted dying and all this sort of thing. Uh, Obviously, uh, who would have thought that insulin could be used for such a thing and so cleanly?
3: Well, that's a big question. I know that a lot of diabetics are are very familiar with the risks of insulin, with the risks of an insulin overdose, with other things like this, but I don't think the general public knows about it. And I also think there are many questions that need to be addressed as far as regulations in nursing homes and long-term care facilities regarding access to drugs. Are nurses able to get their hands on these and are they tracked? Are they logged? Are they allotted to a particular patient? And, And these are questions that I know people have wondered about, and I've wondered about, and we've tried to investigate this, are there more regulations that are needed, or or is it that existing regulations have to be followed a bit better? And that's something that we don't know with uh, the nursing homes in this particular equation not willing to speak out, and the government not really speaking out about this.
0: Well, even so, Andrew, you know, you think of how... how how this drug didn't seem to be detected if it was or if it was administered through an autopsy in any way what does this say about other cases are there other cases out there in other nursing homes and other situations where this would have all happened and gone unnoticed
3: This is, I think, a really important point here, and we know that uh, deaths at the hands of medical practitioners are relatively rare. This is the first case of its kind in Canada, and even in the U.S. there have only been a few dozen that have been documented throughout history, and I think in a lot of cases, not to to project any motive uh, in in any direction here, but I think there there is an understanding that because of how we as a society, I think, expect seniors are at the end of their lives, we don't really question these things, and I think this is an area where... It is going to raise some very difficult challenges as we move forward. I know that police have said there isn't a motivation to exhume bodies. Now, that would imply that there is a level of confidence that they know what happened to these specific people, the eight uh, men and women who are at the center of this case. So they must have been able to trace these drugs in some other way then. Or they got a confession, and given some of the mm. reports we saw yeah. from the last couple of weeks that uh, Cam H, the treatment centre in Toronto, may right. have been the one that tipped police off, that certainly seems like the way things are going, although we don't yet know how that formulated. So what do we know about the nurse? Uh, background checks, that sort of thing? Was any of that done? presumably to work in a long-term care facility, that is all supposed to have been done. Now, uh, we've tried and I've tried to reach out to a number of uh, people at the nursing homes in question, Carescent Care in Woodstock and Meadow Park in London, and they're not speaking at all. The uh, College of Nurses of Ontario had a clean, uh, completely clean record on her. The only issue that at all was put forward was the one after the charges were laid. So it doesn't seem like there was any so anything so much as a blip on this woman's record yet here we are facing uh, the, this situation how where none of those checks and balances clearly prevented what is alleged to have happened so is this someone
0: that just kind of slipped through the cracks or does this show a need a greater need for obviously more checks and balances
3: I think the big question will come down to whether or not there were any red flags along the way, because we're looking at a span of about seven years, 2007 to 2014, and in some cases three of the deaths occurred in a span of uh, as short as two weeks. So were there questions that were raised in these homes? Were there things that were missed or things that were ignored? If that comes out, and this is where I think oversight is very important, and we have had calls for the government to have a, a formal inquiry into this, where that That will be very important because obviously not every act of wrongdoing is preventable. I think you and I both wish it were, Mm. we know it's not, but if there were people that ignored things along the way, whether it's an allegation of abuse as uh, one of the daughters of one of the victims has claimed she knew of in the nursing home, that's something that will raise questions of whether oversight is really lacking here.
0: Uh, What do we know about the stability of the nurse? We have certainly uh, heard of Facebook posts and such, which are uh, confusing to say the least. What do we know as far as her and, and her history, her past?
3: You know, I spent hours and hours going through old Facebook posts, tweets, uh, poetry that she had published online. She had struggled with addiction of some kind, whether it was alcoholism or, or drugs. She didn't quite uh, really didn't quite claim, although she did indicate that alcoholism may have been a part of it, if not the totality of the addiction. We also know that she wrote some very dark poetry. There was one that she had written uh, that was really in the voice of a female serial killer. And she had written about that poem that writing about a killer made her feel powerful, writing about a female killer specifically. And we knew that she had also even written about, uh, in one of her poems, the bad state of care in nursing homes. And seeing people that were neglecting and ignoring people, so th- there were a lot of anomalies in this certainly. But we're dealing with a woman, regardless of her mental state, w- was clearly troubled at a number of points throughout the time span that these crimes were said to have occurred. Any common denominators in these victims, uh, Andrew? Uh, were all
0: of the you know? Do we know if they were perhaps at the at the at the ailing uh, latter end uh, end of their life? Were uh, were they were people that were perhaps uh, neglected? Is there any Any sort of common denominator or similarity with any of these victims?
3: that we don't know yet. I mean, they were obviously all seniors. The age ranged from about, I think, 74 years old up to uh, the late 90s. So whether they were all in uh, end-of-life care, we don't know. None of them were, as we've heard so far, in palliative care specifically. They were just in uh, nursing homes or or long-term care homes. Uh, One thing that will be interesting to see is whether they were all diabetics, for one example. I know Mm -hmm. that we've heard that uh, one of the victims uh, of the alleged offences, the one in London, uh, did have diabetes which would explain how insulin could and again this is speculative have a direct impact but that's not something we've heard yet because uh, not uh, all of the victims of this uh, have their have had their family members speak out about this Mm. and the interesting
0: thing there Andrew too is that the use of insulin wouldn't be questioned as much obviously right no not at all Uh, so we have nothing on a motive or any sort of clue
3: there as to why this happened Unfortunately not yet. Uh, Wetlawford's appearance in court today was very brief. It was only a matter of a few moments and in fact at the end of it she even said that's it. When she was being escorted away, Mm -hmm. and this was a video appearance from a a facility in Milton, Ontario. We do know that she is scheduled to reappear in a couple of weeks, I think uh, two weeks on Friday of this week. So that will perhaps give us a bit more of a picture into how the proceedings will be going forward and perhaps whether or not there is going to be a a guilty plea or or another uh, sort of alternative uh, course. What was the objective of today? Why was this pushed forward? Uh, today, it was back. just a just a preliminary hearing, a first appearance. It's when we get a painful reminder of how slow the justice system can be at times. Uh, there wasn't really any. Um, there wasn't really any. So just to formalize the charge. Place. So it just formalize the charge and right. remand her into custody. Yes. And she identified herself and entered herself into the court system.
0: OK, so uh, when's her next appearance then?
3: Uh, it is going to be, and I forget the exact number here, but it's going to be on uh, November 18th, I believe, on the Friday in two weeks from now. And what will happen then? Do we know? I believe, as I've understood it, that that will be when a plea is entered, but that's also barring any agreements or, or negotiations that take place behind the scenes uh, between the Crown and her defense lawyer and the judge. Wow. Do you think that this may not go to a trial That it, it, uh, or, or that
0: may, uh, be, if there is a confession, speed things up a bit?
3: Uh, that is a possibility, and that's something that I'm going to have to ask you to get uh, people that are far more intelligent in the <laughs> areas of how the law works to comment
0: on here. What about the families? How are they in, in all of this at this point? Have you, how <sighs> many Have you spoke to them at all?
3: I have. It's been very difficult. I know that one woman actually spoke out first on our radio station at AM 980, Susan Horvath, whose father, Arpad Horvath, died in Meadow Park in London. And we also had this morning another woman speak out who had a Bible that her father owned and had since the First World War. Mm. Uh, he was a World War One vet, and, and she spoke just about how much her father, who had such a heroic life, uh, how much it bothered her that he went out in, in this way, allegedly. So uh, there are a lot of family members that are coming out for this. And for for them, they've lost a family member and they've come to terms with that loss. But now they're finding out, like I said earlier, as many as uh, nine years later, that that death was possibly under different circumstances. And that is so apparent in the pain that we're Mm. seeing from them.
0: Uh, obviously, uh, the baby boomer segment of the population uh, aging, moving through uh, the population and, and a great, num- a great uh, percentage of our population. Has there been demands, calls for a total review of senior care here? I mean, this is a problem that's it's, it's only going to increase as, as the population ages. Uh, has, do we have a handle on this, do you feel?
3: I mean, I don't think we have a handle on it because people are raising so many questions. I know I spoke to someone on my show last week from the Canadian Centre for Elder Law who was talking about the need to really upgrade policies in provinces across the country where we have somewhat of a patchwork now from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. I've also spoken with other advocates that have said this is a problem that comes down to staffing, that a lot of these problems that we see in nursing homes, like neglect, are not from malicious intent but from just a lack of resources and a lack of staffing. And we have at the provincial government level, certainly in Ontario, I think, a need to to look at this in a long-term way because the fact is not everyone can afford home care, which I think most people agree is the best alternative here. And not everyone has the ability to look after aging and ailing family members themselves. So people want to know that if they are going to entrust a parent or grandparent into one of these facilities, that it's going to be done in a way that is respectful, in a way that they're getting good medical care. And even if we're not talking about Murders that are taking place on a widespread nature. The rampant questions about neglect yeah. are still there and will persist.
0: Do you think this? Uh, do you think this will uh, instigate change? I think this is just the tip of the iceberg here.
3: I think it will. I mean, we're dealing with an outlier here in that it's a very extreme case that, thank goodness, is not a typical of what we see uh, on a widespread nature. But I think it does raise questions of, OK, how did no one notice? How did no one see this? How did no one uh, call into question what was happening? And if they did, why did that not make its way up the food chain? Mm. And I think that the case against wet lawfer as it proceeds, is going to be less interesting in the grand scheme of things than finding out what happened or didn't happen behind the scenes at Carescent Care and, and, and led to a lesser extent, Meadow Park, where only one of the events was alleged to have occurred. Andrew Lawton
0: has been with us. The Andrew Lawton Show on AM980 in London, our affiliate out there. Andrew, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Yeah, thanks a lot, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM900CHML. All right, there has been lots of chatter over uh, time in regard to... Uh, Patrick Brown and his sex ed curriculum and where he uh, falls on the issue. Lots saying he flip-flopped on all of this uh, once he got in. And now the latest coming from uh, all the attention his 19-year-old candidate is getting in uh, in the recent by-election, of course, in which uh, Sam Oosterhoff... Uh, got rid of the party president they he just he took them all down and just simply outworked them all and did so uh, largely supported by a social conservative campaign we'll talk about that and the latest uh, liberal allega- or the latest liberal situations with bribery all uh, as well with Peter Grave political science professor at McMaster University he is with us now hello peter how are you today great thanks thanks for taking the time to join us we always appreciate this is patrick brown muzzling his newest candidate
4: Uh, Yeah, I suspect he is, or at least uh, probably trying to impose a certain amount of message discipline or ensuring that it's going to be there so that it's the kind of by-election campaign that he wants.
0: Uh, Is that good or bad?
4: Uh, Well, I guess it depends on where you're sitting. Uh, I mean, if you're the leader of a political party, uh, you want to make sure that uh, your message is consistent because once it begins getting frittered all over the place... uh, really hard to know what you stand for. So, I mean, presumably uh, for being an effective political party, uh, you expect a kind of uh, uh, muzzling, if you like, or message discipline. Uh, if you see parties as places where citizens can make a difference by, uh, you know, setting policy debates, then you actually want a bit more diversity in views, and you probably do feel that parts of uh, the Conservative Party uh, aren't getting a chance to hear their views.
0: Uh, Patrick Brown, of course, had one position on uh, sex ed and then said after further consultation, uh, he realized where that was rooted and then decided to leave it as it is. Uh, should a candidate be promising something that goes against the leader and something he's already stated? I mean, he did flip-flop on it, no two ways about it, but it's also he's made himself clear where he stands now and has been for some time.
4: Uh, Yeah, I mean, the flip-flop was so outrageous that you can imagine that, uh, you know, from one day to the next almost, uh, taking opposite positions, that you can see that it would be unpopular within the party. But it's certainly difficult for a candidate uh, to run for the nomination saying they're going to stand for something when it's quite clear that the party's position is something quite different. Uh, you know, and so that causes some problems for the, the Conservative Party uh, because they don't want to be running on what uh, Mr. Oosterhoff seems to think should be the sex ed curriculum. They have their own view. But yeah, in that context, it's really up to the candidate to find a way to rally to the party position uh, if they're going to run under a party banner.
0: Where does this leave uh, the candidate now that it appears that he ran on a different platform than what his boss does?
4: Uh, well, I mean, it really leaves him uh, to say, uh, I'm now going to stand behind the party uh, platform. It leaves him in the difficult position, ultimately, of uh, betraying the people who brought him to the nomination. Uh, if he's going to be an effective candidate, in a sense, he promised them something that he couldn't deliver. Uh, or, I mean, presumably, uh, he could decide to step down from the nomination himself. So, I mean, I think it leaves him in a difficult position. I mean, more to the point, uh, it's been a week of bad news for Patrick Brown. I mean, this was uh, going to be pretty much a slam dunk election for the Conservative Party there. I suspect it still is, more or less. Uh, But rather than it being a chance to hammer the win Liberals about uh, particular issues and particularly energy prices, uh, he spent the past week and a half playing defense and really reminding all Ontarians that Uh, His position on the sex ed curriculum seems to be more opportunistic than based in any kind of sound set of principles.
0: Uh, Is that Patrick Brown or Oosterhof? Uh,
4: I'd say it's probably Patrick Brown. I mean, uh, there's a conservative case to be made uh, for Patrick Brown's position, right? That, uh, you know, in the modern world, kids need access to uh, sex education, and the the kinds of education being promised aren't really that different from the ones uh, Ontarians have been getting for the past quarter century. I mean, I don't think it's hard to make that point, but it's harder to make that point after you spend a lot of time talking about how somehow this was a radical and improper shift in parents' roles, they're being taken away from them and so forth. And I think that's where Patrick Brown's problem is, is that Ontarians have sort of seen him not really have a firm uh, argument behind it, but uh, a tendency to shift with the winds. And this is being put back in their minds by this case where you have someone in the base of the Conservative Party saying, well, I remember this other Patrick Brown from six months ago.
0: Hmm. Uh, Patrick Brown alluded when all this went down that it wasn't about the sex ed. It was about uh, certain groups that that just felt a certain way and and, you know, perhaps weren't accepting of homosexuality and, and, and that sort of thing, and that he didn't realize all of that when he was fighting for this. Do you believe that?
4: No. <laughs> I mean well, I mean if we believe it then we have to think of Patrick Brown as someone who doesn't work hard to figure things out before taking positions on
2: important mm-hmm. issues.
4: Uh so uh, I mean, does he want us to believe that about him, or uh, do we uh, think that he's actually not being honest with us when he tells us that? So, again, it puts him in a situation where he doesn't show well either way. Whether but my,
0: some may say, and I guess this depends on the position that you want, that because he did flip-flop, he he had learned something, and that shows leadership.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think we probably do uh, enforce too strict a line on our politicians. Uh, I mean, it's probably not healthy that we expect them always to say the same thing. We should expect them to be able to learn things and change their mind. But I don't think that the positioning of uh, the anti-sex ed curriculum people, and particularly people like McVetty, who were very close to Brown during the leadership campaign, uh, was a surprise. I mean, it's been well known what of positions those, uh, those sectors take. So how Patrick Brown could pretend that he didn't know that uh, strikes me as kind of hopelessly naive and I think that's a, the bigger issue. I mean if ultimately there had been some studies that had come out or there had been the real clarification of an uncertain curriculum, you know you might be able to say okay, now I see things are, are, are different. But uh, it's hard to see uh, really what he could have learned that he wouldn't uh, and shouldn't have known beforehand.
0: So how does uh, Oosterhof move forward with this? Who is who's guilty of misleading one, the other or both?
4: Uh, Well, I mean, in this case, I think it's really the candidate who, in a process of trying to win the nomination, uh, you know, sign some checks he can't cash.
0: <laughs> in, in that because way. Patrick Brown had already clarified his stance.
4: Yeah, I mean, it was clear that to, to run on that was going to put you at odds with the party and where the party stood at this moment. Uh, I mean, it it is a kind of useful moment inside in the democracy inside a party for the members to say, well, wait a second, we actually think that the party has until recently taken this view, so why have you changed it? Or, you know, as a party leader, did you really have the legitimacy to change it, or or do the members really need to have their voice heard on it? So, you know, in that sense, uh, you know, making those promises and having that come up in the nomination is probably a useful moment inside the Conservative Party in terms of the relationship of the leadership and its members, but as a, as a fighting political party, it clearly comes at some cost. I think uh, the Conservatives are lucky in this case uh, in the sense that it's a guaranteed seat for them, more or less. If you have a pulse, you get elected as a conservative candidate there. Uh, and so it's more a matter of figuring out how to uh, make sure that the young candidate actually is going to follow the party line when he's elected.
0: Uh, we're certainly seeing the federal conservative party have to deal with this sort of thing with, with candidates such as, as Kelly Leach. Um, w- would the PCs just rather these candidates sit down and, uh, and, and let the party move closer to the center?
4: Uh... Yeah, I mean, I think that's an issue when you're an ideological party uh, and then try to make a run for the center. So there's going to be a tension between uh, the base of your party's desire to have a particular vision put into policy and uh, another part of the party that says, no, it's more important to get power and we won't be able to put everything in place, but we can at least do something. So, I mean, I think it's an enduring tension. I mean, the Kelly Leach story is a bit different because, I mean, a, a leadership race is one moment where parties can actually have a discussion about what their direction is going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so to have that, uh, you know, may not uh, serve necessarily the party's uh, broader electoral appeal, but it seems to be a more legitimate uh, space at which people can take views that are not necessarily consistent with party policy because, in a sense, choosing that leader is probably a first step in choosing the party policy. But, yeah, with candidates, it becomes a more uh, touchy affair. Mm.
0: Uh, getting back to the candidate promising something that the leader already stated that uh, he was against, how did this get this far? Did they just assume he wasn't going to lead, so, or he wasn't going to win, so we'll just let him basically say what he wants? At what point in the campaign do you say, hey, you know what, that's, you know... That, that's not exactly where the party's going, or do they let them be at this point?
4: Well, I mean, I think uh, the view was that Rick Dice was going to win that nomination as the PC party president. Uh, it should have been a shoe-in for him, and so they probably uh, were paying a bit less attention at the, the nomination stage. But even after a candidate is uh, puts their name forward to run for the nomination, I mean, they can take all kinds of positions. So, Uh, I mean, I think it's more uh, an issue for the party in terms of how they control that. I mean, most of the time in candidate selection, no one's watching that closely. And so uh, once someone is selected by a riding association, there's a vetting process where they go through all their Facebook pages and so on and make sure there's nothing damaging there before they actually uh, allow them to run as a candidate and give them the party uh, endorsement. In a by-election, it's a bit harder because uh, people are watching very closely who's selected at that nomination meeting. And so there's less opportunity to, uh, you know, ensure that the candidate is actually on the same page as the the party and its leader.
0: How did he win uh, in out-hustling these two veteran candidates?
4: Uh, Well, I I haven't actually been able to look closely at uh, how it happened on the ground. I mean, clearly, uh, people have noted the size of his family, his capacity to organize in his church. uh, That probably played. It is a riding with a fairly
0: large... Doesn't that sound odd when you think about it, though, Peter, the size of one's family and their affiliation to their church is a factor?
4: Well, I mean, these nominations are really about who can get the most members out to vote, and that includes uh, signing them up. And so, yeah, it does sound odd, but in some ways how people get involved in politics is that someone asks them. And so it happens through these kinds of networks and processes often how people... Uh, do get signed up and and get involved. I mean, I I think on top of that, you do have to lay on the fact that it is a fairly socially conservative riding, uh, where they, you know, have seen, you know, 10 years of Stephen Harper's government, but maybe not movement on things like abortion or same-sex marriage, where they had hoped that something was going to change. And so then they look provincially and they say, well, here's Patrick Brown uh, quickly walking back any kind of commitment to uh, changing the uh, sex ed curriculum. And so I think you, there's a kind of feeling of disenfranchisement in that group to say, well, who, you know, if, if Patrick Brown is already walking this back a year and a half away from an election, what will he actually do on any of the issues that matter to us? So I think again, you know, uh, could play on that, and of course Rick Dykstra is a St. Catharines person, not a Niagara West person. Uh, he had his issues uh, before the last election with some stories coming out that maybe portrayed him in not the most flattering light if you were a social conservative uh, in terms of buying drinks or maybe not buying drinks for young women. Uh, you know, those sorts of things probably all played in the decision to not go with the establishment candidate and instead to, to push uh, Usterhoff.
0: Coincidence we haven't heard from this candidate yet?
4: Uh, no, I think uh, he's been kept well under wraps, and uh, I think they also understand I mean, this is the other thing, when someone's 19, uh, by the sound of things, probably homeschooled. Uh, there's a danger that the media has a capacity to push them around,
2: mm. particularly
4: when they are uh, they they smell blood in a case like this. I mean, it's a bit similar to the case. I mean, it was in a 19-year-old, but uh, uh, where uh, Ruth Ellen Brasseau got elected, the Vegas candidate, as she was often called, mm. uh, the NDP made sure that uh, she was well trained for you know a week before the media got a chance to speak to her, so that uh, you know, she knew what was coming, but also they had developed, uh, you know, a shared mis- uh, a message that they could keep to on all sides uh, and so that the media couldn't uh, really exploit any kind of questions around it. And I'm sure we're seeing a similar situation here, less for the, the outcome in the riding, which, again, I think is pretty well assured for the Conservative Party, but more to not turn what should have been a good news story in terms of getting, uh, you know, winning this, this by-election into a bad news story in the sense of reminding Ontarians of, of Patrick Brown's, uh, uh, I don't know, questionable sincerity, if you like, in terms of his position on, this, uh, on the issue of sex education.
0: Uh, what are, uh, quickly, what are some of the major challenges for a 19-year-old ca- uh, candidate? I mean, think about that. He's 19.
4: Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are kind of down on the idea of having young people uh, in Parliament because they say, what life experience do they have?
0: On the other hand, isn't it good to get new blood, new energy?
4: Uh, Yeah, I mean, that's generally my view. In the past, there have been a number of young people elected to Parliament, and uh, most of them have served probably uh, very well, probably understanding that challenge. I mean, it's not your typical 19-year-old who runs for Parliament, uh, and they have a real incentive to try and learn and not make a fool of themselves. So most of them actually rise to the occasion, unlike some other members of Parliament who seem uh, unable to do so. So in that sense, uh, yeah, I think their biggest challenge is, is people thinking they aren't ready in terms of lacking life experience. And I mean, presumably once they are elected, they do have to work hard to, you know, work on questions of judgment uh, and make decisions without necessarily the base of experience that slightly older people have, a sort of broader view of the world. But uh, I think the other side, of course, is that a lot of them have energy, uh, more energy than older people, and a real desire to prove themselves uh, given the responsibility entrusted in them. And, And so generally, I think they do fine uh, as members of parliament uh, we might actually think it is a good thing to have some young people there because uh, you know they're ruled by the laws as much as older people they should maybe also have a voice in terms of how those laws are made.
0: It'll be fascinating to watch. All right, let's move on. Election Act uh, ch- bribery charges laid against uh, two Ontario Liberals under the Election Act uh, charge. Charges stem from allegations that uh, Pat Sabera and Jerry Lahid offered a would-be candidate a job or an appointment to get them to step aside in a 2015 by-election in Sudbury. Where does this lead the Liberal Party?
4: Uh, I think it's bad news for them. Uh, I mean, certainly they've lost uh, their chief election organizer in Sorbera, at least for as long as this is before the courts, and she's unable to to serve as, uh, you know, to uh, Kathleen Wynne. So, I mean, it's a a hit to their organization. But I think more it's yet another reminder to Ontarians uh, that it's a government that's been in power for a long time and seems willing to use whatever tools they have in office to solve problems, uh, even if it's, you know, contrary to aspects of the law. So I mean I think in many ways if you read these cases a lot of people would say well how's this different than how parties usually use patronage <laughs> in the sense mm. of saying yeah if you you know do this uh, maybe there'll be a post for you uh, so you know well usually
0: the other person's willing I don't think that was the case here
4: uh, yeah well I mean there's a, there's sort of two aspects to the charges against uh, Sorbera. I mean one is certainly trying to get someone to step down in return for some kind of uh, advantage or post, which, I mean, is uh, it's a problem. It's contrary to the law, uh, even if it's probably common practice uh, in these sorts of negotiations about candidacies. Uh, and the other, of course, was the idea that Thibault may have been promised something. Glenn Thibault who mm-hmm. ran the, in there, that's a second charge uh, in return for deciding to run for the, the Liberals. So, uh, I mean, that's uh, kind of the other the other piece of it. I think it, mostly it reminds Ontarians that it's a government that seems uh, willing to use public resources to solve their private problems and uh, may remind them of things like the gas plants, where again, you know, they saw their electoral advantage in canceling that and they didn't mind spending a billion dollars of Ontarians' money to do that. Um, so uh, I think it's more, it, it continues to give the impression of a government that is getting old and tired. Maybe getting a little sleazy, uh, and is maybe a bit too willing to uh, use uh, public offices and public money uh, to just solve their own internal disputes.
0: A uh, strong case in the bribery charges here, or just will this end up being a way of doing business?
4: Well, I mean, they've been brought under the um, the Elections Act, uh, so in that way they aren't criminal charges. Uh, I mean, still, one doesn't want to be found guilty of them uh, because, in the, the eyes of the public, it's uh, still a breach of the law. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what the decisions are, again, because uh, uh, in some of it, it seems like the sort of regular workings of political parties, even if it's kind of verging on the borders of illegality. And so I guess we'll be be able to learn to what extent uh, kind of uh, suggestions of preferential treatment or of appointment to uh, offices uh, is going to count as a breach of the law. But uh, I mean, in the eyes of the public, I think what counts is whether one is found, well, first one is charged, it kind of tar as a party when something like that has happened, Uh, and then if there's a finding of a guilty charge, I mean, I think that's as good as gold for the opposition parties to, again, develop this view uh, of the Liberal government as needing replacement.
0: Will, uh, how will the opposition handle this? Will this just be, uh, is this this large bait? Are they going to attack this?
4: I think so. I mean, because it's a bit like uh, whenever Stephen Harper did anything that was a bit secretive. Uh, it was used as, you know, further example of a, you know, a government that was all into conspiracy and being closed to the public. I think the line that the, uh, the NDP and the Conservatives have tried to develop over the past four or five years is that it's really a government uh, noted by its incompetence and its willingness, again, to... Uh, to spend uh, money or use its advantages freely for its own partisan advantage. And so it's a nice way to keep that line of narrative in in the public's mind. Uh, It clearly didn't work last time out in terms of the last election of changing the team that was there, but Mm. uh, uh, it may be more compelling if you continue to add examples to the list uh, to get the sense. I mean, people are willing to vote against uh, parties if they feel they've been there too long getting the sense that they've become too comfortable with the levers of power and of using them for their own narrow self-interest. And so another four years maybe makes those arguments more compelling.
0: Peter Grafe has been with us, professor of political science McMaster University, talking about uh, the newest PC candidate, Niagara-West Glambrook, and of course the uh, bribery charges against uh, two Liberals in regard to the Elections Act. Peter, thanks for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on
2: AM 900 CHML.